Welcome to Murder and Mimosas. Just a quick disclaimer before we get started. Our show is Murder and Mimosas. It's a true crime podcast. This means that we do discuss crimes, including but not limited to disappearances, murder, and sexual assaults. All our episodes are told with the respect of the victims and the victims' families in mind. We strive to ensure that we provide factual information, but some information is more verifiable than others. With that, grab your mimosas and let's dive in. Welcome back. I'm Shannon. And I'm Danica. We're going to tell you the story of the Wichita Massacre. It's a cold winter night in December in Wichita, Kansas. It's December 8, 2000, when 23-year-old Andrew Scrivener pulls up to a come-and-go. He expected to be a quick trip to get some skull. Instead, he's hijacked by two men with guns who force him into the back seat. They take him to three ATMs to withdraw money, which comes out to be about $800. The two men stop, and one gets out to get in another vehicle to follow them. They drive to a remote area, hit Andrew in the back of the head with a gun, shoot out his tires, and leave him there. Of course, Andrew is terrified, but thankful he lived through this terrifying ordeal. He reports this to the police and hopes for the best. Danica, in his recount of what happens on the stand, he breaks down and talks about praying that he would just survive this ordeal. He was just 23 at the time, and I cannot imagine the fear this man felt. Yeah, I mean, at that age, you're kind of in between, you know, feeling like an adult and still feeling like a kid kind of feel invisible in the world. And I don't know if you can ever feel that way again after that ordeal. So it's December 11th now, 2000. These two men are back at it again. They follow 55-year-old Linda Juanita home from practice with the symphony. She had felt that someone was following her when she pulled into her driveway. Before ever even getting out of the car, a man approaches her asking for help. She was a little hesitant and barely cracked her window to hear what he was saying. Once she did, he put a gun through the crack and began shooting at her. She threw her car in reverse, trying to get away, and ran into the curb. Her her head hit the horn, which alerted the neighbors when her horn's going off, who came to her aid, and they called the police. She was able to tell the police what happened and give a description of the men, but Unfortunately, she ended up dying three days later. It's now December 14th. There's snow on the ground. It's a bitter 17 degrees for the high that day. And everyone is getting ready for the holidays. 25-year-old school teacher Holly Glover went to Jason Befford's home that he shared with his two roommates. Jason, a science teacher and a basketball, was a, a science teacher and a basketball coach. And he was to arrive after the basketball game, which he did. Until that time, Holly was grading papers as she awaited on him. Also, there was his roommate, Brad Hakey, a manager of financial services company. And the other roommate was Aaron Sander, who was in the priesthood and aspiring to become a priest. Heather Muller, a preschool teacher who also stopped by that night to visit with her ex-boyfriend, Aaron, was also there. Once home, the friends watched TV, and then they all settled in for the night for bed. Jason and Holly retired to Jason's bedroom after he had locked the doors for the night. 
Jason and Holly are awakened when they hear loud noises and beating on the door. They are shocked and terrified when they see a man enter the bedroom. After he does, he rips the covers from the bed. A second man enters the room, shoving Erin in. They have guns and golf clubs and ask if anyone else is in the house. They told them of Brad in the basement and Heather in the other room. They were rounded up and all brought to Jason's room. Once the guys get everyone in the room, they force them to strip their clothes off and get in the closet. They're looking around for things to steal. They are bringing them out two at a time to perform sexual acts on each other. The girls are required to perform sexual acts on each other. The guys on the girls, it's just a really horrible idea. Everything's horrible in this situation. So they bring Aaron out to have sex with Holly and he refuses. And he was hit in the back of the head with the pistol. I really wasn't sure I even wanted to mention this because I don't want the victim to be shamed, but I thought in a way it tells the true nature of these men. They bring out Heather to have sex with Aaron and he can't get an erection. I mean, honestly, who really could in this situation? So once he can't get one, they begin to beat him with a golf club. Okay, so Aaron and Heather used to date, right? And Aaron was one becoming a priest. Yes. And I couldn't find why the two broke up, but I would have to assume maybe something to do with the priesthood since they're still on good terms. But honestly, I don't know. So while ransacking the place to find things to steal, they find a ring in a popcorn tin. They ask about it and Jason says it's his. He was going to propose to Holly on Christmas Eve. Oh, no. One of the men start talking, start taking them one at a time to the ATM while the other stays there and rapes the women. Once they have all the money they can get out of everyone there, they tell the women they can put shirts on, but the men must still remain nude and they're going to take them to an alternate place and they're leaving. Wow, very chivalrous of them to let them wear shirts and they say chivalry is dead. <laughs> no joke. I know it's freezing outside and you can have a shirt. Only the women though. They have this Honda Civic that they want all five of them to get in the trunk of. But of course, they don't all fit. I mean, who knew? They decide they're going to steal Jason's truck and use it also. So they have Holly drive, drive the truck. The three men are in the trunk and Heather drives the Honda Civic. And they drive them out to a soccer field and have them get out of the car. They have them all nil. And they begin shooting them execution style. After they have shot all of them, they take Jason's truck and then run them all over for just good measure, I guess. They leave together in Jason's truck and they go back to the house and start taking bigger things like TVs and things that they couldn't get before. So who are these two men anyway? That would be Reginald and Jonathan Carr, ages 22 and 20 at the time. The boys Grew up in Cleveland for a while when their parents were together. Regional was his father's second child, and his mother had him when she was just 16. The couple had two more children, one being Jonathan. Their relationship was rocky, to say the least. There was physical abuse in the relationship, infidelity, drug use. Just it wasn't a good home life for the kids. Their mother finally decided to leave their father when the boys are nine and six. Not only had the boys had been 
exposed to all of this horrible stuff in their marriage, they were also sexually abused. Their mother finds another man, also not a great one. He was also abusive. The boys began getting into trouble. They were stealing. They were doing drugs. They were selling drugs. They were just not in a good place in their life. In fact, Reginald robbed a bookstore and was given probation. But he just kept failing drugs tests, violating probation, and then he was caught with meth, which landed him in prison. Jonathan tried to commit suicide for a second time once his brother was put in prison. Once his brother got out of prison, though, the two decided to leave Dodge City, which they had currently lived in. So they were literally getting the heck out of Dodge. <laughs> yes. And they went to Wichita, which they began their crime spree. Some will later argue that it was the boys' upbringing that caused them to turn out like this. And had they been from a nurturing good home, they would have turned out differently. I guess it comes back to nurture versus nature, but we can't say for sure how they how these boys could have ended up making their decisions. So let me circle back, though, to the friends shot in the soccer field. We have Holly that was shot in the head, but her hair breath kept it from being fatal. Once she's sure they're gone, she gets up and she starts checking her friends. Mind you, she only has a shirt on and it's literally freezing outside. While they lay in the snow, she sees Jason is bleeding from the head. And of course, she takes her shirt off and wraps it around his head, trying to apply pressure to keep the bleeding from getting worse, trying to get it to stop. She knows she's got to get help, though. As I mentioned before, it's December and she sees Christmas lights in the distance. She takes off walking. What ends up to be about a mile, she walked through the snow in the brush and crosses a barbed wire fence, naked, may I remind you. This girl has some fight in her. Yes, she does. So she gets to a house. She knocks on the door. They bring her in, wrap her in a blanket, and call 911 for her. They're telling the dispatcher what all's going on, and Holly's like, hey, I want to talk to the dispatcher. I want to tell them what happened because she doesn't know if she's going to make it. So remember, she's also shot in the head. So she gets to the hospital and she wants to talk to the police there. She does tell them that they left in Jason's truck. Of course, they could have easily have ditched that truck by now and be in something else. The police don't waste any time, though. They have an APB out for this truck. The news is eating this story up and it's all over the news. Someone sees something about the truck on the news and they call and say they've seen it at an apartment complex. Police get over there and they're trying to decide what to do. What's their plan of action? I mean, this is a huge apartment complex. I mean, they can't just like go door to door and be like, hey, is our suspect here? Because, you know, that's going to blow their cover. So while they're sitting out in the parking lot trying to decide what to do, there's a resident that lives in the apartment building. And they're like, hey, do you know this guy that drives this truck? And he's like, well, I actually helped him get a TV out of that truck last night, and I took it to the helped him move it to the third floor, floor apartment last night. Oh, that is some luck right there. Yes, and let's also not forget this was two thousand, and that TV he wanted help with was not a flat screen back then. It was this one of those honking big heavy things? So the police set up to the third floor, and this is where Reginald's girlfriend lived. She answered the door. But still, 
had the chain lock on it, just like peeking out at the police. While they're talking to her, they see someone in the background trying to flee out the back door. Also remember, this is the third floor. Reginald was trying to escape but going through the balcony. They burst in, but the police also are outside and they see him on the balcony. So needless to say, he didn't get away. That still leaves the question as to where Jonathan is. He happened to have a new girlfriend he decided to go see. He's at her house that day, just chilling, and the TV's on. And she's like, hey, isn't that your brother on the news? And he's like, oh, uh, I, I, don't, I guess. I don't know what's going on. So the girl, she still lives with her mother, lives with her mother and she becomes alarmed, wondering, what is this Jonathan guy really like? So she goes through his jacket pockets and finds an engagement ring. She slips out and heads over to a neighbor's house to call the police. Well, you know, I know moms are always in your business, but this time it seemed like it might have been the best thing. Yes. So remember that once I'm in your business again. So the police do get there and he also tries to run, but he doesn't get far before he's caught. They now have these two guys that were terrorizing Wichita. Andrew was able to identify them. And before she passed away, Linda was also all was able to positively identify them. Were they able to use that in court, though, even though she passed? I'm actually not sure. I would think they didn't have the foresight to know she was going to pass and record it. But honestly, I just don't know. So the brothers do have over 100 charges between both of them. They showed absolutely they showed absolutely no remorse at all. They were blowing kisses in the courtroom, waving, just being completely inconsiderate of the victims and their families. Reginald was eventually removed from the courtroom to, due to his behavior. The two were convicted and sentenced to death. There is actually one surprising love story out of all this. Andrew and Holly, the two survivors, became close during the hearing and they began dating and are now married with three kids. Okay, remind me, because there's been a lot of people. I know who Holly was. Was Andrew the guy from the beginning? Yes, he was hijacked. He was hijacked, okay. Yes. What's really awesome that something good could come of this. I mean, all this terror and you able to come over it and function and you kind of got that person who's been through that sort of thing with you. I think that's really cool. That is. And also I wanted to mention one of the, um, detectives said that, you know, I mean, I mentioned this was in December, it was around Christmas, and he said he used to turn his off, lights off at night, but now he always keeps them on at night because of Holly seeing those Christmas lights in the distance and knowing there's a home over there, so he always keeps his on at night. So that's just also something to think about if you want to keep your lights on at night during Christmas. Or I know a lot of people have those permanent lights now they keep on. And just change colors. Yeah, that is true. Maybe if it's not Christmas, it still gives them a light to find to follow to know that they're going towards a home. But Holly is a trooper. That is insane that she went through that. Um, But it's just crazy. And part of me wonders, since they came in that little car, they didn't expect that many people to be in the house because... You had to know five people aren't going to fit in your trunk. That's true. I don't think they had any idea. I don't think they planned anything out. They just, honestly, I think they were just high, drug-induced, looking for more money. 
looking for things to sell to get more drugs. I don't think they planned anything out there. Just like, hey, let's try this. I wonder what um, Jonathan's new girlfriend thought when she found out that he was in on it. And she saw the brother on the news and her mom found out. I don't know. But hopefully she has better taste in guys now. I don't know. Well, we can hope. Yeah, we can hope. I mean, you can't go a whole lot further down. No. But also, hopefully she listens to her mama and um, has listens to that mama intuition when she brings a a guy home and her mom's like, oh, I don't know about him. Make them all empty their pockets. <laughs> I don't know. Being me, I'll probably be like, oh my gosh, is he going to engage? It's been like two da- dates. What is he doing? Red flag. <laughs> I'm calling the cops on him. Red flag. But I guess they, I mean, I do wonder what made her call the cops if that's all she found. And they may have mentioned it on the news. I couldn't find that because I wondered that. Like, did they mention it on the news of things they had stolen or like how did, what made her call the cops for finding the engagement ring? Because I feel like my mom would have just gone straight to, oh, my gosh, she's trying to propose already. Yeah, because that's what I thought when I, I was like, oh, she must have thought like something and the, told the daughter. And she, the daughter's like, no, I don't want to marry him. I don't I don't even know this dude. But apparently the mom was like, no, no, we're calling the cops. Something ain't right. Yeah, I'm going to assume that there was something on the news about that. But I honestly don't know. I couldn't find anything about it. Well, this is crazy. And it's also crazy that it's fairly recent and I didn't know anything about it. This was 23 years ago. I don't know if I would call it recent. Well, I mean, but like I know about a lot of more obscure crimes that happened in like the 70s and 80s. That's true. I mean. But yeah, this brought me back kind of to the Idaho murders kind of had a same feel. Um, So. Yeah. Strangers getting a whole bunch of together yeah whole household yeah this is way more twisted though that's true but we still don't know everything about the Idaho murders so it's true but I feel like if there was some sort of sexual assault they yeah the sexual that. stuff was really really crazy I just yeah they're sick and morbid and freaks so. mm-hmm. well drugs will do that to you you know that's true so our tip of the day is listen to your mama and stay off the of drugs so take that and <laughs> take that as you will <laughs> All right. Well, that's all we got for this one. We always recommend more bubbly and less OJ. Cheers. Cheers. If you'd like to see pictures from today's episode, you can find us at murder.mimosas on Instagram. You can also find us at murder.mimosas on TikTok, Twitter. And if you have a case you would like us to do, you can send that to murder.mimosas at gmail.com. And lastly, we are on Facebook at Murder and Mimosas Podcast, where you can interact with us there. We love any type of feedback you can give us, so please rate and review us on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you.